Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While many capital region communities are prepping to outdo themselves with 4th of July fireworks displays, the smoke from wildfires up north in Canada is still invading our country. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. <laughs> you know, talking about nightmares, this is probably the one that somebody unplugs the cooler or whatever and years of work uh, need to be uh, put into the bin. St. Peter's Health Partners is looking to close the Burdett Birth Center in Troy, which would leave Rensselaer County entirely without a hospital setting to deliver babies. We'll talk about the impact of this decision. They filed the paperwork two days before this sort of groundbreaking law went into effect that would have required them to, you know, hire an outside firm to do a study on how the community would be impacted. And we'll take a look back at Casa Susana, the groundbreaking safe haven for trans women in the Catskills in the 1960s. I think that was the importance of Casa Susana, finding that community of people that understood what you were going through. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's now discuss what appeared in the Times Union on timesunion.com and on our social channels this week. All right, we are here with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines as we do every week. We will start with the fact that Mavis Discount Tire reached a settlement with some of the families in the Schoharie limo crash, something that's a long time coming. Tell us all about it. So we're talking uh, once again about the aftermath of the October 2018 limousine crash out in Schoharie that uh, killed 20 people, 17 passengers, the driver, and two pedestrians in a parking lot as the uh, decrepit Ford excursion careened from the bottom of a, a long descent into a, into a weedy ditch. And we are talking just a couple of weeks after the guilty verdict that was returned against Nauman Hussein, the operator of the limousine company that owned the vehicle. This week's news reported once again by Larry Rulison, uh, our outstanding investigative business reporter, is that the families of four of the victims appeared to have reached financial settlements with Mavis Discount Tire. 
Mavis Discount Tire has an outlet. It's a national chain. They have an outlet in Saratoga Springs that did maintenance work on the vehicle, but uh, what was revealed in the uh, prosecution of Nauman Hussein and other state investigations was that workers at Mavis claimed that they did work that they actually did not do and uh, that they also gave state approval, essentially a DMV sticker, to the vehicle that should not have been granted. In other words, the limousine should have been inspected by the State Department of Transportation. It shouldn't have gotten the same sort of DMV inspection that, you know, just your car or mine might get. Now, the terms of these settlements with four of the victims or the families of four of the victims have been sealed because there, of course, are other plaintiffs who are still negotiating. But um, considering a lot of the evidence that came up in Nauman Hussein's trial and elsewhere, including in Larry Rillison's reporting, it is not exactly surprising that Mavis would be moving towards settlements. Indeed. You can read more of Larry's excellent reporting at timesunion.com. All right. This week on Tuesday, it was primary day in New York State. Uh, Can you go over some of the most notable results? Well, here in the Capital Region, it was definitely a good night for incumbents. You know, two of the most closely uh, watched races that we were following was the Democratic primary for Saratoga Springs mayor, where Ron Kim, the incumbent, prevailed against a challenge brought by Chris Matheson, who is former uh, commissioner of public safety. Once again, this this is a primary toward the end of June. So not surprising. The turnout was not exactly how you say robust, but Ron Kim in the early returns, at least the unofficial returns, prevailed by a margin of of about 300 votes. Down in Schenectady, Mayor Gary McCarthy overcame a challenge from uh, Marion Porterfield as well. And so they will both now head into the general. We were following races not just in the, the four core counties of the capital region, but also all the way down into the Hudson Valley, where the race for Poughkeepsie mayor Um, looks like it could end up in November with Poughkeepsie getting its first uh, black mayor, which is pretty remarkable. So I would uh, recommend that folks go check out the results and the coverage of analysis from our team from the capital region all the way down, uh, all the way down the Hudson River. Well, whether it's a primary or a general, it is never a dull day on Election Day here in the newsroom, for sure. Exactly. And we were all kind of covering it somewhat remotely on primary night, or at least I was I was at home helping to tabulate votes from the various county board of elections. And it's the same kind of thing. You know, the polls close at nine o'clock and then you stare at the screen and update the board of elections web page and curse. Command R, command R, command R. Exactly. Why aren't they they filling in the numbers? And uh, and then all of a sudden they all pour in and and it's a race, a race for the finish. Never a dull moment. All right, let's move on to the education realm now, where uh, some research came out this week that shows that the New York State Regents exams aren't very effective. What does that mean? 
So an advocacy group called the Coalition for Multiple Pathways to a Diploma, which I will concede is a somewhat bulky name for an advocacy group, put out research that, uh, and it's really a coalition of advocacy groups that um, have called into question the efficacy of uh, the Regents exam, which of course is, you know, the set of exams that most, if not all New York students are, are intimately and probably unpleasantly familiar with. And uh, the research shows that the tests neither properly assess achievement or lead to student success going forward. One of the telling details that Kathleen Moore, our education reporter, noted was that if it's a very hot day when the tests are administered, that can negatively impact student performance. Now, Jess, if, if a hot day can determine whether or not you know, your educational career has been a successful one or not, that's problematic. And as Kathleen Moore noted, uh, this is more kind of fuel on the fire that could lead the state board of regents to, if not do away with, at least sort of de-emphasize the, uh, the regents tests going forward. Now, of course, the, the big question is what comes after it, some kind of alternate path to assess student performance, uh, something that moves away from kind of the standardized test model that, of course, has been called into question for many, many years now. So we shall see. Indeed. And I am forced to think of my recurring nightmare. Yeah, no, my recurring nightmare is that I have a Spanish final and that I didn't study for it or didn't go to class the entire year. And then suddenly I have a vinyl. My recurring nightmare is I got hepatitis in Mexico when I was a senior in college. And hepatitis A, you know, you recover from it after a couple of weeks. I got a little bit jaundiced, but it was wow. it was still awful. And so I uh, I went home to Blake recuperate. And so a recurring nightmare whenever I'm behind the eight ball, even though it's more than 35 years, it's almost 35 years later. My recurring nightmare is that I am home and my university has made a deal with my high school that I'll be able to get a diploma because this is my senior year of college if I just take classes at home while I'm recuperating from hepatitis. And of course, so I'm back in like chemistry and French class, you know, four years after I took these classes and I remember nothing. And I'm like, I, not only am I screwing up in high school again, but this is going to prevent me from getting my college diploma. Those are visceral dreams. Those are very real. I do not doubt the feelings that come after you have dreams like that. We're going to put that aside, though, because we are no longer in high school. But we will continue to report on it. Um, the last story I wanted to touch on uh, actually goes to college over at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, where a cleaner, a campus cleaner, accidentally destroyed years of precious research. What happened? Allegedly, yes. Yes, this is a lawsuit that was brought by Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute against a company that employed a cleaner who was working in one of RPI's many labs. And uh, there was, I will try to describe this uh, fleetly, there was um, basically an air conditioning unit in essentially a, a kind of samples vault, as it were. And an alarm would go off if the temperature went above a certain, it was very, very cold. We're talking about more than 100 degrees below Fahrenheit. Three or four degrees up, alarm goes off. Three or four degrees down, alarm goes off again. So this cleaner, according once again, according to the claims in this lawsuit, hit a button that he thought would turn off the alarm that was going off, thinking he was being helpful, 
and instead it turned off the refrigeration system. RPI claims that that destroyed uh, decades uh, potentially of of samples and research work. I, I believe the the work being done here was into photosynthesis, sort of pursuant to developments in solar technology. So unfortunate, without a doubt, for RPI. And Ken Crow's story describing this has been very, very closely watched. One imagines that there are lots of researchers at universities and elsewhere who, you know, talking about nightmares, right. you know, this is probably the one that somebody unplugs the cooler or whatever and years of work uh, need to be uh, put into the bin, as it were. So this got picked up by the BBC, by CNN. Lots of academic institutions are, you know, fanning themselves and <laughs> saying, don't let this happen to you. But a very, very interesting story. Well, I remember not to go back to college and high school again, but I remember the feeling when I had written an entire essay and then it got deleted and that feeling was not good. Yes. And I can't imagine, you know, writ larger with years and years and years of research, how that must feel. So, ouch. I'd just like to point out to listeners that we are doing this exchange on the headlines live in my office, just the two of us in a room, for the first time in the history of the Eagle podcast. That is groundbreaking. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, on that note, we are taking a hiatus from the Eagle for a little while, and it wasn't because of this, uh, but we will be back uh, toward the end of the summer, and we will have something new and exciting in stores. A big project that we are very excited about. Yes. You know, similar to uh, your work on uh, The Lost Boy, the Jaleek Rainwalker podcast, your ambition in taking on these big narrative podcasts is uh, is something that makes us all very proud. More to come on that. Thank you so much, Casey. Thanks. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or on any of our social channels. News of St. Peter's Health Partners' intention to close its Burdett Birth Center in Troy and to consolidate other medical care facilities across the region has caused concern over the future of local access to health care. Times Union Health reporter Rachel Silberstein has been following this ongoing story and joins me now to discuss the latest. It is a stark reminder of the broken healthcare system in this country, and it starkly points out the systemic racism and economic inequality that, is, that exists in America. There is a lot going on right now with uh, St. Peter's Health Partners, which is one of the, the giants in healthcare in this region, um, and specifically with their Burdett Care Center, which is a um, maternity care facility and birthing center. So what was kind of the big news around that? We learned that a week ago, St. Peter's Health Partners and its parent company, Trinity Health, had quietly filed the paperwork asking the Department of Health for permission to close the Burdett Birth Center. We had learned about that they were talking about it last week as well, but they hadn't formally filed the paperwork. This is significant because they filed the paperwork at two days before this sort of groundbreaking law went into effect that would have required them to, you know, hire an outside firm to do a study on how the community would be impacted. Hmm. And the community would definitely be impacted, right? Correct. Burdett 
birth center is the last remaining maternity ward in the entire Rensselaer County. At one point, there were five. And because of the consolidation of the hospital industry, over time, it shrunk and maternity units closed. And now it is the only, you know, conveniently located uh, maternity ward for all of Troy and all of Rensselaer County. So for reference, though, you know, if this place closes, you know, and anybody who lives in Rensselaer County would have to travel to what, Saratoga or Albany or Schenectady, which is at least a half an hour away in most cases. Correct. And, you know, we we spoke last week, we spoke to a lot of birth workers, community members who told us that this hospital serves a largely black and low income patient base. And many of them don't have cars. Um, They take transportation. And so if you're in a situation where you're about to give birth, timing is kind of important. They believe that it would really put a lot of people in danger. Yes. With birth, time is very much of the essence for many reasons. Uh, Now, there is more going on with the St. Peter's system than just the fate of the birthing center, though, right? The backdrop is sort of the consolidation of the healthcare system that has sort of been merging and cutting services at a rapid pace all across the country and here in New York. And often the first to go are maternity services because of, you know, they've never really been profitable, but hospitals sort of justified it because it got families in the door. Um, But in hospitals like Burdett that serve like a high number of patients that have Medicaid or uninsured, um, you know, they in the hospital's defense, they find it hard to sustain. Medicaid rates, they got a boost this year, but they have been stagnant over time. Um, And so I think large corporate hospital entities have trouble justifying keeping them in multiple locations. They try to consolidate it in sort of the main hub hospital. And so that's sort of their argument. So they did what, you know, a pretty routine filing that the hospitals do when they're trying to consolidate services or close services. They did something called a limited certificate of need, which limited review certificate of need, which means it doesn't even come before this panel of experts that works with the Department of Health and generally approves mergers and major structural changes in hospitals. So really, this is just a simple administrative approval that I think advocates are worried will get no public scrutiny and the community's voices won't be included. Um, This would affect a wide range of communities that are underserved that I think this new law that would have gotten into effect two years later would have amplified. So I do want to ask, because you did mention it quickly, St. Peter's Health Partners, their, you know, response, they're just like, well, we can't. So in their application and what they told us is that, you know, despite the fact that they're not required to do this, like, in-depth study on equity by the law, they said they have informed the Department of Health that they will incorporate in their closing plan the feedback of these interest groups and community members. Um, Those interest groups and community members told me that they were never contacted. um, And the hospital told me that they are very far along in the process and have talked to many, many groups and are, you know, are including all these voices. I guess we'll see how that shakes out. But in the meantime, I think there's been like a great push for the Department of Health to really ensure that whatever happens next includes uh, the perspectives of these underserved communities. Instead of ending systemic racism, you're proposing to support it with a possible closure for that center. 
You can go on these sites and find all these awesome words about safety, justice, equity, integrity, and so on and so forth. But the actions of these organizations say otherwise. Uh, there are a lot of people who are very passionate about keeping the Burdett Birth Center open. Tell us about them. Yeah, so there's a, a coalition that formed um, kind of, you know, last minute when the, when the news sort of broke um, of people. And it's it's sort of like a bipartisan sort of cross-section of people from all walks of life. Well over 100 people showed up to protest in Troy last week. And that was actually ironically the same day that they filed this paperwork. So I think the timing is always is, is interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of upset feels a little different. Um, St. Peter's in general, because as they've sort of consolidated, we've seen them cut a bunch of services. Recently, they shut down their dental clinic that serves people who are low income and uninsured, and that created a, a major void. Um, there's almost no uh, facilities that will serve this population. Um, they also uh, reduced their mental health care. And these are other services that a lot of these large hospital conglomerates tend to cut first because they're less profitable. Um, and so I think people are starting to see the bigger picture and are hoping that the state steps in and maybe does an audit and puts more checks on these hospitals to ensure that people are getting like these basic services that they need. What more is there? Burdette Birth Center, it closes. Say we're in the future, like it's done. Where are people going to go? Like what's the... What are the options for people? Um, so I think the closest hospital would be Albany, and that's and Albany Med and St. Peter's Hospital. They they said they're expanding their their uh, facility in Albany, um, and then they could travel to Schenectady has a birthing unit. Um, there are concerns there too because um, St. Peter's is in the process of merging with Ellis, which owns Bellevue Women's Hospital. Um, and so they're worried that service could get services could get cut there too, which would make the situation worse. Uh, and then there, you know, I think Saratoga is a little farther out. So, but for some, for people who don't have transportation, which is like a large percentage of the Burdett population, it's really not a feasible option. Um, and now you and I have talked on this podcast before about some of the issues surrounding, you know, hospital birthing in the capital region. In that, you know, St. Peter's Health Partners is obviously a it's a Catholic-run organization, so there's already issues at play, you know, for people seeking reproductive care. I mean, Burdett was part of that, obviously, but will that create more issues um, along those lines as well? Absolutely. I mean, I I think a big focus has been on abortion care across the country. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about ensuring that states outside New York have this access. But right here in our state, these sort of industry shifts are really affecting access to basic maternal care, be it regular maternal care for high-risk pregnancies to things that Catholic-run hospitals won't do because they are governed by these ethical and religious directives that are written by the conference of, you know, Catholic bishops in other states. And so, you know, it's true. As, as the St. Peter's network expands, more and more places won't do uh, procedures like tubal ligations and vasectomies. For a while there, Burdett had sort of an exemption. It was run independently. And so they were doing tubal ligations, which is sort of permanent sterilization process that a lot of people do during the birth process um, that are prohibited in Catholic hospitals. And last year, they said it wasn't sort of financially feasible to keep those services. They cut them and sort of re sort of absorb the hospital into the Samaritan Hospital, which which it's currently part of. 
this is, I think, yet another blow to maternal care in the capital region and in the state and in large parts of upstate New York, huge swaths of which just don't have access to not just reproductive health care and abortion and, you know, sterilization procedures, but basic obstetric services. After the break, we'll talk about the story behind how a house in the Catskills became an underground LGBTQ plus safe haven in the 1950s and 60s. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. As Pride Month comes to a close, we are going to talk now about a forgotten chapter in New York's LGBTQ history. Almost 20 years ago, an antiques dealer found an old photo album at a flea market. The photos contained within featured chic 1950s style housewives. They wore voluminous wigs, bold lip colors, gleaming pearl necklaces, and wide smiles. They were enjoying themselves during an era when a public exploration of their true identities could cost them everything, because they were trans women and cross-dressing men. It would come to be known that those photos were taken in the late 1950s and early 1960s at Casa Susana, an underground LGBTQ haven outside Hunter, New York, in the Catskills. A documentary that explores what life was like at Casa Susana 60 years ago premiered this week on PBS. Times Union Hudson Valley reporter Maria Silva went to the premiere and joins us now on The Eagle. I need to know more about myself. I need to know what it would be like to live as a woman for an extended period. Visiting Casa Susana was almost a necessity for me. What is Casa Susana? So the name comes from the actual owner of the house. Her name was Susana Valenti. Uh, she had immigrated to the United States in the 40s. And she was probably living in New York City at the time. And that's where she met her, who would be her wife, 
um, Marie Tonell, I think her name is. She was the owner of a wig store in on Fifth Avenue, I believe, in Manhattan. You know, they met, and I, I remember, especially in the documentary, how Marie's grandson, Gregory Bagarosi, who I was able to interview for the story, he was kind of telling me about when they met, and it was a, an instant click. So Susanna apparently had gone into the store, just kind of looking around and trying on wigs, kind of figured out that those weren't wigs for Susanna's family or sister or, you know, it was for for her. She kind of figured figured that out at it right from the beginning. And that was kind of something that, you know, Susanna was able to see, see how accepting Marie was. Was Susanna openly living as a woman at this time? Yeah. So at the time, I don't want to misgender Susanna, obviously, because at the by the end of her life, she had um, she was living as a woman. But yeah. when she met Marie, she was living kind of as a man to the eyes of everybody else. But at the time when they met, and especially in the 40s, 50s, and even in the 60s, uh, Susanna hadn't really, I guess, transitioned. She was still living as a as a cis presenting um, man, but it wasn't until later in her life, like I think in the late 60s, when she actually started living full time as a woman. I think it's relevant to mention simply because she was such a sort of groundbreaking, you know, like pioneer for living your authentic self, right? You know, like at a time when it was not, it was frowned upon or it was actually illegal that she was able to kind of live her authentic self and, and enable that for other people, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that was that was the special thing about Casa Susana. Some of the people that attended that would spend weekends at Casa Susana were actually heterosexual or cisgender men, you know, men who had been assigned male at birth and, you know, um, identified as the that gender that they were assigned at birth. Um, while some others actually, and I mentioned this in the story, some others actually ended up transitioning later on in their lives, such as Catherine Cummings and Diana Mary Shapiro, who are both featured in the documentary. So that was kind of the the dichotomy of Casa Susana. Some of them just enjoyed, you know, dressing up and kind of exploring the the boundaries of gender expression and dressing as women and knowing that there was nothing wrong about that. You know, they just wanted to explore, I guess, that part of themselves. While for other other attendees of Casa Susana, it was more about exploring who they were as women because they, you know, as they ended up transitioning later in life, it was kind of the first introduction to being a woman um, that they had experienced in their life. So let's talk about Casa Susana in and of itself, like where was it? What was it exactly? Was it a house? Was it a, you know, and where in the, it was in the Catskills, right? It was near the uh, town of Hunter in Jewett, I, I believe. So initially there were two houses and that's kind of confusing because a lot of people kind of tend to call Casa Susana, you know, understand Casa Susana as one house, but there were actually two homes and one, the first one was, it was called Chevalier Dion, which I believe it was called, it was named after a prominent transgender spy, French transgender spy. 
that one ran until the late 50s, and that's kind of where they held female impersonator shows for the community, uh, besides having, you know, hosting people. But that one felt well, more public facing. Yes, exactly. And there were bungalows where people could stay. And I remember Gregory Boree's grandson talking about that, uh, about the female impersonator shows and how the entire community would come, would attend those, including the chief of police of Hunter, the mayor, um, very prominent people. And they were pretty open about that, you know, and I feel like that's kind of impressing the fact that they they would do that so openly. And I guess, you know, the performance was kind of what made it acceptable in Gregory's words. Everybody understood that that was a performance. Mm-hmm. And then I believe in the late 50s, um, Susanna and Marie purchased a different house. And that was the, well, came to be known as Casa Susanna. That was more of a bed and breakfast type of arrangement that was kind of more for the cross-dressing community to meet there and talk about what they were going through, such as, you know, when do I tell my wife? Do I tell my wife? How do I tell my family? How do I approach this? And for many of them, that was the first time that they could talk about that with somebody else. Uh, For many of them, that was something that was hidden throughout their lives and especially Um, Beginning during childhood, some of them, including Diana Mary Shapiro, she recounts how she began feeling feeling like this during her childhood and how isolating that was, how lonely that was. But Casa Susana was the first time that she and others could openly talk about that without fear of being judged and ostracized. I think that was the importance of Casa Susana finding that community of people that understood what you were going through, you know, you really could explore that and debate those things and talk about what that means for you and your family. A safe space. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about the documentary then, because that was kind of the hook for the story that you did. It aired on June 27th on PBS, and I believe folks can still watch it online or on demand. Um, but tell us about this film and, you know, what you learned about it, because you went down to the premiere in New York, right? Yes, I went down uh, last Friday to the premiere. Gregory Begarosi, Marie's grandson, and Susanna's step-grandson, as well as Betsy Wolhen and Diana Mary Shapiro were there. Those were people that were uh, featured in the documentary. Unfortunately, Catherine Cummings um, passed away, I think, last year. You know, they showed 40 minutes of the film and that was followed by a a sort of panel discussion Q&A. The documentary was filmed by a French filmmaker, Sébastien Lifshitz. Then the documentary kind of revisits the history of Casa Susana through the people that were there. Very timely release of the film as well during, during Pride Month, June. Yes, absolutely. And especially during a time when things like drag shows are criminalized or targeted in many states nowadays. And, you know, transgender rights are also put in the spotlight and questioned. To localize this story a little bit, let's now talk about Hunter and the Catskills. They're kind of important characters in this story, too, right? You know, Hunter is a very small community. And at the time, I think it only had a population of less than 2,000 people. So 
I think it was just a space as in Casa Susana and the Catskills as a location plays a big role in that safe haven. Nowadays, it's, you know, a, a vacation, you know, destination. But at the time, also, it was very popular. But yeah, space was very, a very important factor here. It was kind of like secluded. They, that there aren't really that many houses nearby. And there there's a pond, you know, they have several acres. I think that such an idyllic spot for you to find that community and find yourself in such a beautiful space must have meant so much to them. This documentary also kind of takes on the historical impact of the LGBTQ plus population, specifically trans people, right? Something that came up, especially during the panel, was that people think that transgender rights or gender nonconformity is a thing of just a couple of years ago or 10 years ago. And I guess what this kind of shows, this story kind of shows, is that gender nonconforming people have been here throughout history. They are people that you know, they are in your community, and they have existed for as long as humans have existed. So I think that what Casa Susana really shows is that there's a history that hasn't been visited or that is not known because it's more, it's a topic that's more talked about, more discussed nowadays. Maybe because people think we're more open nowadays to um, LGBTQ people, that it's something that, oh, you know, there are more young people coming out as LGBTQ nowadays, as opposed to, you know, our generation, you know, 40, 50 years ago. They were forced to live inauthentically. Exactly. They were forced to live on the sidelines underground. They were forced to remain hidden um, out of fear of being literally criminalized and put in jail and, you know, their lives potentially destroyed, basically. I guess the takeaway of this that people who are LGBTQ have been here throughout history, and it's not something that's new or recent. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We are going to take a little hiatus, as we said before, over the summer, so that we can focus on our next big podcast project. You'll hear more about that soon. But we'll be back in the fall to bring you more from inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Rachel Silberstein, and Maria Silva for their contributions to this episode.